This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The Asian region of the globe is one that is filled with controversy and conflict right now. We have a country in North Korea that is threatening to fire missiles at a variety of locations. We have another country in China that the United States government is expecting more assistance from in getting North Korea under control and, according to the the government, not getting it at this point. And we have other countries that feel like they may very well be caught right in the middle. To take an overview of what is happening in that region of the world right now, we are joined here in studio by our friend Jack Delisle, who's professor of law and professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also director of the Center for East Asian Studies. And joining us on the phone as well, Richard Dasher, who's director of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center at Stanford University. Jacques, great to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Great to be back. Thanks. Thank you, Richard. Great to have you as well. Thank you, Dan. Uh so if if you look at this as a whole right now, Jacques, I, I mean, there are so many kind of things intertwining. Obviously, one of the most recent concerns was Guam and, and whether or not Guam would actually be a target. How do you surmise what's going on uh, right now? Well, we've heard it's going to be great for tourism, right? Um, yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's a mess. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of this is just a set of intractable problems, right? So I'm sure we'll get into the details of how the Trump administration has handled this. But it's worth taking a step back and saying the North Korea problem is real, and it's been getting more difficult over time. Uh, The real intractable, you know, the uncrackable nut here is that the North Korean view of the world is having nuclear weapons is their survival strategy. I mean, Kim has looked at Gaddafi, has looked at Saddam, and has seen what happens. And so trying to get them to denuclearize, which is still the official U.S. goal, is really tough. It's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, it's hard to get China to cooperate to that point, even if they could, and there are limits to what they can do. So there's a genuine underlying problem there. Yeah. And there are genuine underlying problems in the U.S.-China economic relationship, and some of which the administrations identified, like intellectual property force transfers sure. or coerced transfers, and a lot of things. Not so much the trade balance, which I think is, is a misdirection. But so you've got those underlying problems, and then you have layering on that some really strange ways of trying to handle them. Sure, yeah. So upping uh, the rhetoric uh, to Kim Jong-un style levels is not terribly helpful. Having an incredible... Fire fire and fury. Fire and fury, or if you believe one newspaper in Maine, fire and furry, which sounds a little less... Oh, I did not see that There was a typo in the headline. It was pretty funny. All right. Uh, but, But basically, what you're getting is bellicose rhetoric, that uh, that reduces the likelihood of Chinese cooperation, yeah. and you get profoundly mixed messages from the administration. They're trying to get their ducks in a row now, but they were all over the map, uh, from Tillerson to Mattis to the Joint Chiefs head to Trump himself. Uh, and so the attempt to climb down and Trump trying to redouble down. So what you've got is a situation where the entire region is looking around having to deal with the possibility that the worst and most bellicose rhetoric and the cycle of escalation is real, yet at the same time discounting what Trump says because so often we've heard things which his own staff has had to walk back. Richard, how do you, uh, how do you put it into a context? I agree with uh, Jacques completely. I think that if I could add just one or two things, it's uh, very difficult to see just what's going on in the China-North Korea relations because the central government... Uh, up to now has been accepting a lot of exports from North Korea. They have been sort of the main trading partner of North Korea, and they have uh, been able to get around previous sanctions by saying that they're doing this for humanitarian purposes so that the normal people in North Korea are not being hurt. 
But most of the hard currency that comes in from selling those exports into China is actually going back probably into the military uh, activities of North Korea. If this is something that the central Chinese government can control, uh, it will be rather difficult because they want the status quo. They want things to continue like they are because North Korea is a buffer state. They, it um, really prevents a lot of uh, possible internal problems in China if there were a lot of refugees running across the border from North Korea. The, um, the kind of regions in which uh, China borders on North Korea are largely Korean-speaking inside China. And those people may not be following exactly what the central government says. So it could be that the U.S. is expecting the central government to do something that internal to China is more difficult than you think. Well, there was a story uh, when this all really got going, Jacques, about uh, one of the reasons why China didn't want to rattle North Korea too much was the relationship on workers that the, that the two sides had of North Korean people going into China and working and maybe to a degree vice versa. I mean, that that to me, when I heard it, I, I thought about how big the Chinese economy is, as we have talked about on numerous occasions. I'm thinking you're relying on workers from North Korea as an element? Yeah, I think that's a relatively small part of it from China's side. Now, yeah. it's a big part from North Korea's side because yeah. you know, they are hard currency strapped, right? So they, they depend heavily on exports. Uh, to to get the currency they need uh, for you know keeping the ruling elite and the living in the style to which it's become sure. accustomed as well, as well as a variety of other things. And so one of the curious things about what's happened in the last couple of weeks is that that there really was a, a potentially significant diplomatic breakthrough. The UN Security Council voted 15 to nothing with China and Russia, yeah. siding with everybody else. And of course, they have, have the veto. So if they had voted otherwise, the sanctions wouldn't have gone into effect. And we've tried sanctions before, and it's, it, there have been sanctions in response to prior North Korean transgressions of limits on nuclear weapons tests and ballistic missile tests. But this time, there was going to be a bit more teeth. And Richard refers to, quite rightly, to the humanitarian exception. That language wasn't there this time. Yeah. Uh, and the sanctions were expanded to cover additional exports and this worker component. Now, the workers have been going to Russia, too, which is, is sort of the Russian angle on this. That's really more important for North Korea than for China. And the Chinese concern, as Richard rightly points out, is not about the economic significance of North Korea. It's nothing to China. It's a right. blip. Right. It is about not wanting chaos in North Korea. A disorderly collapse is a bad thing for China. The refugee flows are real. The possibility of reunification under in a precipitous way under a U.S.-allied South Korea, those are right. bad scenarios for them. The good news in this has been that North Korea is increasingly an embarrassment to China, and China increasingly has to acknowledge that as North Korea develops the capacity uh, to wreak nuclear havoc on U.S. territory, China kind of gets it that that's a more core U.S. security interest. Yeah. So you're going to see the kind of pushback uh, we haven't seen um, before. So you know we were seeing, I think, some progress in that area. There were still good reasons for skepticism about how fully China would implement some of these sanctions because of the of the points uh, that we've talked about about, about the the you know, desire not to push North Korea all the way to the brink economically um, and because as Richard also points out there there are certainly entities within China that benefit from trade with North Korea it was also telling that one of the other moves forward was the U.S. before the U.N. Security Council resolution had imposed secondary sanctions on the Bank of Nandong, which is a bank in northeast China near uh, Korea that's been doing business. And we said, we're cutting you off from the U.S. financial system. So we're starting to see tools that might actually really bring some pressure to bear. Right. China's fed up a little bit with Kim. 
China may actually have followed the sanctions this time a little better, although it would have been too early to tell. And we're seeing that the, the U.S. threat of secondary sanctions. Well, uh, Richard, there's still, I, I think, uh, some question in some minds. And, and obviously, I think this is becoming more and more apparent that the nuclear potential is there for North Korea. But but prior to that, and when they were still kind of going through and, and trying to figure this process out, I, I think the the view of Kim Jong Un was, you know, to a degree, a little bit of a petulant child, you know, and and basically he was he was you know the kid that brought the soccer ball to the game, and he was going to run away with it if if things didn't go his way. Is, is that a fair assessment prior to these latest developments? Well, there is a personality aspect to this, but I think more than that. Kim is using this whole situation to solidify his control, to keep his tight control over North Korea even tighter. It's great to have a common enemy that you're afraid is going to invade your country. And that to North Korea, that's what the U.S. looks like. And he has uh, used also standing up to the Americans as a way of showing that they have national pride. So for Kim, in some ways, the real bellicose nature of this back-and-forth language has been a godsend. It's made him look as uh, prominent and statesmanlike as anybody else in the world. Uh, I think that the uh, North Koreans are going to be really, like Jacques said, it's going to be really difficult to get them away from their uh, nuclear capacity. They already have nuclear weapons. They have done nuclear testing underground. Yeah. What they've been doing is shrinking them to the size that they can get onto the missiles. Uh, that's still new. But they already have nuclear weapons. They already have mid-range um, ballistic missiles. What they're developing are the intercontinental ballistic missiles that could go directly all the way to the United States. So I think that it's going to be really hard to prevent them from... Um, getting rid of what they already have. Is there is there an element of this that Kim Jong-un, I mean, as Richard points out, he wants to have this presence as a world leader and he wants to remain under control. But, but I would think he has to be looking for something more than that outside of his country. I, I mean, he, realistically, he's not bringing anything in to improve his situation in, in his own country to a degree. Well, and that's the hope for... A solution, a way out of this, right? And if, if we if we take off the table the likelihood of a large scale conflict, even a nuclear conflict, which you know is, I think, still very low probability, but higher probability than it was not too long ago, yeah. thanks to yeah. what the North Koreans have been doing and thanks to Trump's uh, response to it, um, and you know, and then I think we do see the the gravitational pull of of what Trump says on his own secretaries and such. You know, we saw the Madison Tillerson op-ed, which is trying to find kind of a middle ground, but certainly taking a tougher stand. So what's the way out of this? I mean, I think Richard and I would both agree that that getting uh, denuclearization is going to be well nigh impossible without regime change, and yeah. regime change is awfully risky. Uh, so what you're talking about doing is trying to contain it, right? And so the possible way out is to the extent that China says, we've had enough, we can't keep writing you a blank check because you're becoming embarrassing to us and, and you're risking a destabilizing war on our doorstep. So Kim, you got to back down. Uh, you get to keep some nukes, uh, but a small number and close monitoring. And in return for that, the increasingly squeezing sanctions come down some. Right. And that's, that's probably the way out. Um, and I think you know Kim would may be open to some arrangement like that, but he's walking a fine line, of course, because many of the ways toward economic improvement, including by lifting sanctions, if you're going to 
do more than simply take down the squeeze that we've tried to put on the regime, then it tends to involve a degree of openness. And when you have sure, joint yeah. ventures and foreign investment and all that and all the kind of Chinese model that every once in a while North Korea has flirted a tiny, tiny bit with, that is emulating what China did in the 70s, opening up, problem is information comes in with that. Yeah. And when information starts to come in, the story that this is the greatest place on earth and we're under siege by the Americans who want to kill us, the story which is made more credible by what Trump has said, you know, that story starts to crumble. And then you've got a problem of regime survival. And I think most of what he does can be understood in terms of regime and dynastic survival. Richard? I agree completely. There is a class of people in North Korea, which is one of the most isolated places on Earth, that has seen the outside. There are actually people who have cell phones in North Korea. And, uh, of course, the government is watching them very carefully. But uh, there's some interesting activities by, I would say, lower-level bureaucrats, lower-level people who are in the sort of in the broader elite in North Korea, who are moonlighting and uh, starting stores to sell things for real currency. And, uh, you know, they want, they want Gucci handbags and they want Ferragamo shoes. And so these people are starting to see something change in Korea if it's going to come. Probably needs to come from internal sources. And letting these people really uh, have more kind of freedom is something that would be in our interests, I think. Now, it's very dangerous. I, basically, they're paying off the people who are really in power to turn a blind eye to what they're doing. I, I, you mentioned General Mattis a second ago, and I want to bring both he and also General Kelly up as well, because General Kelly, obviously, moving in as, as chief of staff in the, in the last uh, week and a half, it, it makes you wonder how much of importance President Trump will really put on those two gentlemen in terms of how some of these things are playing out. You know, it's it's watching the Trump White House has become a little bit like watching North Korea. I mean, it's a very opaque process. And it's a question of figuring out who has the ear of, uh, of the maximum leader. Um, but I mean, I think what you have seen is a dynamic we've now become familiar with in, yeah. in terms of, of Mattis and to a degree Tillerson. And so Trump will say something, will go out on some limb, and then there'll be an attempt to claw Pull it, it back, back yeah. right? And so Tillerson very much did that early on, saying everybody can sleep well at night, this isn't going to happen. And then Trump comes back and said fire and fury wasn't tough enough. You know, Mattis um, taking a tougher line. Uh, saying that if North Korea acts, there will be extremely harsh consequences. But that's a walk back from if North Korea threatens, which was literally what Trump said. So I think you see the same kind of game of trying to pull it back. And then you get the chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying, yes, we are ready for military action if need be. Locked and loaded is a step too far, but you were ready to do it. But diplomacy first, and that's a last resort. So I think what you're trying to see is what you're seeing is, is this, this group of, of people, particularly the generals, but also to a degree Tillerson, uh, trying to say, look, we're, we're, here's where we are. We are being tougher on North Korea than we have been in the past because, as a political point, the past approaches have failed. You know, yeah. uh, and there's some truth to that. Uh, but also because North Korea has become more threatening as it crosses these technological thresholds. And uh, you know, the threats aren't even new, but the ability to deliver on them is closer, although not all the way yet, where right. the most dire reports uh, suggest. So it's an attempt to sort of, you know, in the, in the words of the Tillerson and Mattis op-ed in, in the Wall Street Journal, to go from strategic patience to strategic accountability. The idea is we've been waiting and waiting and hasn't worked and they've been moving forward. Fair enough. Um, but it's an attempt to sort of find that, that uh, middle point. But this is complicated, tough, 
high stakes diplomacy. Yeah. And in that world, getting your message right, getting your message consistent is important. And there, some quite capable people are having a hard time doing that because the president goes off and says what he says, and then they have to triangulate between not completely undercutting the boss or having the boss override them and trying to get a message through. And so that's why we see this constant flow of very senior officials to Asia, talking quietly uh, and sometimes not so quietly yeah. to allies saying, you know, don't take that quite so seriously. And Moon, did, yeah, the new president of South Korea just met with the Joint Chiefs ahead to, to attempt to, to sort of do this. But it, it is really tough because everyone in the region now has to hedge against the possibility that Trump means what he says. On At the same time, they are sensibly discounting what he says. And that's a very difficult environment to try to negotiate. Well, you lead me into a great question uh, right here, Richard, is the fact that you have places like South Korea and Japan and, and obviously Guam as, as kind of uh, you know, countries that that are kind of in the mix of this, not necessarily that they want to be in the mix of this. I mean, more and so South Korea needs to be worried about it because of, of, of their proximity uh, and obviously the demilitarized zone uh, between the two countries. Uh, but this becomes a, a growing problem for so many other entities within that, that Asian region. Well, it's certainly destabilizing over the whole region. Uh, I think that uh, this kind of uncertainty from the United States is almost encouraging Japan to take more on itself to uh, really deal with its own defense issues more on its own. Uh, the current Prime Minister Abe would really love to change the Constitution to uh, codify their ability to have an army again. And uh, when you really wonder what the Americans are going to do, it encourages you to uh, do something yourself. They've moved a number of uh, Patriot military uh, anti-missile batteries to the areas of Japan that the missile, the North Korean missile, would probably pass over on its way toward Guam. Uh, and that's basically, in case something falls, they want to make sure that they can break it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this uh, situation is not going to make the rest of East Asia happy to see Japan become even more stronger, more militaristic. Um, the South Koreans, I think, are very used to a threat from North Korea. They've lived with it ever since the armistice. And probably the nuclearization of what, um, you know, what Kim Jong-un has been doing is less direct threat to them and more more of a threat to people at a distance. So uh, you see all of this emphasis on uh, nuclear-armed missiles is not something you would send down just a few miles south of the border. Seoul is within artillery range of North Korea. So um, if they were going to plan an invasion to the south, they'd be doing something different. There's also the news out uh, from earlier today about uh, President Trump wanting to have some sort of trade probe uh, into China right now. When you hear that news, Jacques, your reaction is what? Well, you know, it's it's superficially or you know, first blush, obviously, an odd thing to be doing when you're seeking China's cooperation yeah. on strategic matters. Uh, clearly, there's been frustration, and it's not new to the Trump administration, frustration with 
China's uh, lack of zeal in supporting greater pressure on North Carolina, uh, North Korea. Sorry about that. I'm thinking uh, Americans have We all want to have support for North Carolina. We do. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So the the, yes, the, the insular regime in, in Charlottesville. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Charlotte, North Carolina, rather. So um, anyway, so the, the, you know, the, the concern here is that China has not been nearly as, as effective in implementing sanctions. And that was, I think, some of the reason for the short string being on the UN Security Council resolution. Yeah. But, 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 you know, there was really no time to even test it out. Um, but yes, adding a trade war to that seems quite curious. Now, some of this is just things that proceed on parallel tracks, right? That, sure. is, you, that is, the trade issues are real. They've been percolating up. Um, but, you know, it's a, it, it is a strange moment. There, I guess there may be some uh, theory that we're going to slip back into the kind of of bargaining that uh, that the Trump seems interested in doing and doing that other presidents have not, which is you trade off among issues that don't have any obvious connection. Uh, but I don't think that's going to play terribly well uh, in in Beijing. And in fact, Beijing was getting quite frustrated with Trump on the North Korea part. So, so even that aspect, I think, had become conflictual. To layer on the the economic issues, you know, I think it just it just complicates cooperation. Yeah, you know, I will say that that the the one piece of this is that some of what's being talked about in this trade probe now are actually genuine issues rather than a trade imbalance, which is really just a function of the way the World Trade Organization rules of origin work. So stuff that's got value added from all over the world, sure. happens to get yeah. on a boat in China and come here and we count it as a China trade deficit. That's, you know, that's not really what's going on. But but the IP stuff is real and it's been real for years. Richard? That's right. And certainly the current administration is very bilateral in its approach to these issues. Uh, bilateral and also transactional. They're not really working with a general policy in mind as much as it is, I think, uh, President Trump wants to get the best deal he can every time he gets into a negotiation. And he thinks about that process in isolation of other kinds of pictures. But he'll bring in anything into the process. So trade is a tool that he can use to deal with military security kind of matters. Um, The upshot of this is likely to be kind of uncertainty in the supply chains that go across Asia, and that not only in China, between China and the U.S., but um, materials and components that come up from Southeast Asia and go through China into the U.S. are going to be uncertain and, I would expect, higher prices. You also have still the concern of the South China Sea as well right now, Jacques, which uh, is still something that uh, China believes they have uh, rights to, you know, the majority of that uh, of that body of water right now, and still that that is a concern of a lot of other countries, not only in that region but around the world. Sure, a huge amount of trade passes through that. There's, you know debates about how exactly you count it. And as a recent CSIS um, study says, you know, we're overestimating, but it's huge by any margin, yeah. by any measure. And um, we've recently seen the tensions go back up there. I mean, the U.S. resumed these freedom of navigation operations, which involves sending U.S. Navy ships relatively close in to some of the contested landforms, the yeah. ones that China controls. Uh, and if you go within 12 nautical miles, you are technically inside what another state might claim as its territorial sea. And the U.S. position is we can send our ships through there as long as we're doing it peacefully. China says no. And so we've seen the U.S. resume those operations and China push back saying these are destabilizing, threatening to the peace and contrary to international law. I think all three of those claims are a little suspect, but the temperature is back up. What has changed in the backdrop to this is 
that the rival claimants to China, the, the source of the immediate other side of any territorial dispute, be it Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, uh, they're not pushing things very hard. Partly the Philippines, after it got its arbitration award a little over a year ago, had a change of government and backed off it. Yeah. But in general, China made it very clear it was not going to compromise and was going to be very, very hard line on this. And the neighbors you know, see the U.S. as being less supportive and less reliable. So Richard was talking about Japan. We talk about South Korea, which is partly a change in presidency, but it's also a sense that the U.S. is going a little too bellicose on North Korea. And then you've got countries in the region worried about the U.S. backing it. All of this adds up to what is essentially a new era of hedging against the possibility that Washington will go too far right. or be absent. Right. And those are both bad things for stability in the region. And it has obviously huge economic fallout given the economic importance of that region. Richard, your thoughts? Agreed, 100%. I think that uh, we're really in a position now where it's very hard to see what direction things are going to go. And we're kind of taking ourselves out of the position that we were in, which is more or less a leadership position, but a leadership of independent countries. And we can't make other people do what we want them to do. Uh, that means that uh, as they start to look for other sources of security and risk hedging, uh, we get shoved over to the side. I guess when you think back a few months, uh, when when Trump and President Xi met, I think a lot of people believed that there. when you have those meetings, there's an element of appearance to begin with, that, that these meetings are, are really that. But people, I think, wondered whether or not we were going to see some rather substantive change in terms of the relationship between the United States and, and China. Uh, seemingly, that that's really not going to be there, it, it feels like, anytime soon, with all of these different pieces that are kind of playing out right now, Jacques. I think we need more chocolate cake. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. But I, th I just think don't ask for the extra ice cream, okay? That's right. I'll, I'll try to try to watch that. Dirt. <laughs> uh, so the yeah, I think the, any thought of a, a major a major change in the relationship was, was far fetched. Uh, I mean, China has its interests; it has its agenda, uh, and a fairly clear sense of how to get where it wants to go. Um, and Xi Jinping is not somebody who I think takes personal diplomacy all that important. I think the meeting was important in terms of reducing the likelihood of a severe downturn in the relationship. And we had some real bumps starting out. The, right. the Taiwan phone call, the, sure. the statement about perhaps blocking Chinese access to those islands and so on. Uh, so it was important to get something that, that took the worst case scenario off the table. But the idea that this is somehow going to be some kumbaya moment, I think, <laughs> was really not going to happen, even if Trump did not do what he's done subsequently, which is start expressing frustration about North Korea, start to raise the trade issues again. Yeah. And I think the Chinese view on this is is that they want to manage the really bad case scenarios, which is why you saw some pushback saying drop the rhetoric, yeah. which was an implicit drop the rhetoric or we're not going to help you on North Korea. Indeed, China said, you know, if the U.S. invades, we'll intervene. If North Korea attacks, we won't back them. They're trying to, to go down the middle on that. But the, the overall view in China is the U.S. is busy shooting itself in the foot and possibly in the head. So let's see you know, if your enemy's uh, uh, busy yeah. digging a hole, you know, give him another shovel if he wants to, to bury himself. And I think that's that's becoming an increasingly prominent view. They see it as a great opportunity. But TPP is gone. They're stepping in with yeah. RCEP and, and things like that. Well, I was going to say, yeah, Richard, I mean, no, no, TTP, no TPP so, uh, or uh, that version of it. So, I, I mean, how does President Xi uh, play with play this moving forward in your mind? Well, it's interesting that President Xi has, has come across kind of as a peacemaker in this process, telling the U.S. to tone down its rhetoric and telling North Korea that it's not going to support it as it has been. 
Uh, and certainly this plays into its role as an emerging regional power. Uh, I think that China's interests are very much in line with its own one belt, one road policy, which is looking at trade routes along the old Silk Road and around the Southeast Asia, uh, so that China itself sees itself kind of naturally stepping into the role that the U.S. is leaving. Great to have you both with us. Thank you, Richard, for joining us on the phone today. Thank you. Thanks, Jacques. Great talking to you again. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Jacques DeLeo from the University of Pennsylvania, from the law school here. Richard Dasher from Stanford. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.